And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Darren Kaster. Uh, we've got uh, yet another action-packed show, as usual, for you this week. Uh, first up, right at the top of the show, we're going to be hearing from Katie Gibbs from Evidence for Democracy. Uh, Katie was uh, originally involved um, a few years ago in a Death of Evidence rally that was meant to call attention to the different ways in which Canadian scientists are being uh, either uh, muzzled or intimidated into silence or, or being spoken over in, in a variety of ways and uh, just sort of speaking up basic for the sort of fundamental principle of you know good decisions come from good information and if we're not allowing people to hear from the, the folks who are coming up with the best available information, then we're, we really can't have a, a, a very effective uh, set of policies. Uh, so Katie's going to be, uh, Katie basically continued after that event and, and is now uh, the, the uh, executive director over at Evidence for Democracy and campaigns for evidence being used in our functioning democracy. Seems pretty reasonable to me, but uh, for some reason she needs to have an organization. We'll hear from her in a minute. Uh, and then after that, after the first break, we're going to be hearing again part two of our food roundtable with Haley LaPalm from My Sustainable Canada and Dave Cranenberg from the Center for Social Innovation and a number of other uh, initiatives. Uh, we'll hear the second half of their roundtable, which will also be up on YouTube, uh, the video version uh, thereof, uh, later today when we get the show post up. Uh, we've also got uh, a number of quick updates I want to run through that we'll sneak in a little bit later in the show. And then finally, of course, as usual, we have the exceptional Dr. Sustainable Kevin Farmer is going to wrap up the show for us. So uh, without further ado, however, I'd like to get going on that. So uh, Katie, I believe you are on the line. Sorry. Okay. So sorry, a technical <laughs> uh, glitch there for a minute. We'll just uh, delay for that. Um, I'm going to basically get into some of the uh, items that we have for the middle of the show. Uh, so sorry, we'll just get into some of my uh, updates. So basically the um, we've got an art project we're going to be doing just while we uh, get that sorted out as well. Um, an update on an art project that a friend from the Center for Social Innovation is actually going to be taking care of uh, for us. Uh, it is going to involve us making a cool video that basically explains the concept of what we're doing uh, and, and puts it into a visualization. So kind of like some of those animations you might have seen where people are kind of drawing as you're going along, except that we're doing it as a giant interactive mural that's going to be really, really cool. Um, also, we've had a number of email over the last several weeks uh, about uh, the fact that you cannot currently find us on iTunes, and uh, that's been down for a couple of months, actually. And uh, we've uh, had to deal with sort of some technical issues on that. Part of the fact is that iTunes is honestly just really finicky. Um, so we found a solution announcement, uh, which you won't be hearing if you're not currently getting the podcast, and that's the way you normally interact with us, but maybe tell people if you know anyone that was uh, sad that we're not available currently on iTunes that that's back up uh, because I have discovered the joy of SoundCloud, uh, which is going to allow us to both uh, once again have actually playable interactive links in the online, uh, uh, on the actual pages, uh, and then... Uh, and then as well, we're also going to be able to uh, download them and track them and post them to uh, YouTube as well. Uh, we've got uh, some cool tablings coming up. If you're in Toronto area, there's a food event coming up uh, as well as a sort of uh, fall fair over at CSI. So if you're looking for a chance to sort of maybe meet us, come and ask us some questions in person. Uh, I'll just say that we'll just check the show post afterwards uh, for that. Uh, and then as usual, I've been doing uh, quite a bit of re revision and refinement on the website. We've got it down to, I'd say, a, a, a fine point at this at this stage. 
Um, so if you are interested, you can uh, go and check out greenmajority.ca and maybe give me some feedback. We've, uh, we've got quite a bit of new content on there, and uh, that's all fun as well. Uh, so without further ado, I am going to go ahead and we'll just sort of remix the order here a little bit. So we're going to go and actually start with the second half of our food roundtable with Haley LaPalm and Dave Cranenberg. Uh, the first question I asked them in this is basically, you know, we'd uh, in the last episode, which you can check on our website if you missed it, uh, and also on YouTube, uh, <clears throat> was we were talking about uh, some of the problems with the food system and, and some of the responses to the opponents of having a more open food system. Uh, so in this, I started off with uh, going a little bit the other direction. So we asked them about to talk about some of the success stories from the food movement, uh, both uh, here in Toronto and nationally. So this is uh, Haley LaPalm and Dave Cranenberg talking about food success stories. Victories right now, like for context, I think that this under this move towards solutions, this understanding that we need to rebuild the middle is I'm not I'm not gonna say new, but we're seeing an explosion of creativity and innovation at a lot of different levels right now. So it's kind of it's an exciting time to be working on food because from throughout the entire food value chain, so from producer all the way to eater and beyond. People are experimenting with future of protein, future of access, future of health, future of food waste, future of this. Like they're trying to figure out like where are those where those opportunities to have impact and scale are. But specifically on access, like the ones that there's a couple that I like. Like they're they're small right now. They're they're starting to scale. They're 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 influencing the way others think about it. And I'll give Toronto examples. Uh, yeah, for these two. And one is Food Share with their Good Food Box program as well as their their Good Food Truck, I guess, is like yeah. Um you know, because it was recognized probably five to ten years ago, you know, that there are these things called food deserts where the ability to actually access food like a grocery store isn't possible. That they are um you know, that you have to take transit you have to take a taxi. They're, they're not in walking distance. And if you don't have a car, you're not going to get to them. So where do you go to buy food? Um, and it was really interesting because in some neighborhoods, you know, if you have a lot of, say, seniors on, on assistance, um, you know, like their amount of disposable money to spend on a public transit or a taxi um, and the number of times they can do that per month. If you think of how many times you visit a grocery store, if you can only do that one time a month, what does that mean about the food that you're purchasing? Are you shopping around the periphery where all the fresh produce and product is, or are you shopping in the middle of the aisles? Right. Um, so FoodShare um, operates a good food box program you know, where they collect food from the Ontario Food Terminal, they have distribution centers, and... It's the ability to get a box of fresh produce. You know, I believe you can select the frequency like every week, every two weeks. But you know, it's it's a good, it's a nice way to address some of these challenges in food deserts, which which typically happen in some mm -hmm. some of the lower income neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Their food truck program started experimenting with what? Well, instead of the, kind of having these drop off points, what it looked like if you took a grocery store mobile. You know, and what's so funny is like. We think this is new and creative, but like, this is how food used to be delivered to remote communities, and it's still delivered to remote communities, you know, in other countries. I remember, for my honeymoon, I ended up in Portugal on one of the islands, and we were in a small little town, and the food truck comes around, you know, once a week, and that's where everybody buys their fresh produce. So it's like old ideas are new again because we have to remember what we've forgotten around how we feed communities and how we address it. So food share is one. The other one that I like because it gets to more of 
a middle of the food chain thing is because that's addressing kind of retail and distribution in low income communities. Then there's the one around like job training, which really, if you're talking about hunger and the relevance to local food, it's like for me, it's about job creation. It's about how do you create more jobs in our food system because if people can make a living wage, they're getting paid, they can afford to live a sustainable and healthy life. So Scatting Court Community Center, uh, which is located at Bathurst and, Bathurst and Dundas, I think two years ago now, you, you can't miss it if you walk by because they've created these shipping mm-hmm. container pop-up like uh, restaurants. And it's amazing because like one of the biggest, like if you are a an aspiring food entrepreneur and a chef and like the the ability to open up a storefront is like such is cost prohibitive like it's such a barrier if you're coming from a like a marginalized community so uh what scatting cord did was get shipping containers line them up on the side of you know uh dundas street and local residents can rent them out you know, and as long as they have to supply their own equipment but and own food, but they are, you know, there's a job training thing, a health training piece to it as well, so that, you know, it's anybody can walk by and order food. So it's a way to enter the marketplace around a food, a career in food without all of the heavy, like, upfront capital costs. So I don't know, like, I love that one. I know they're looking to try to expand that into other communities in Toronto as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and... I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing you're going to talk about a few as well. I don't know. Yeah. If we're talking about the ones. Yeah. There, there are two that I'm really excited about, and uh, one of them is uh, Fresh City Farms, and they do the. It's like a a, a, a local supply chain that um, uh, serves people like you and I, and uh, um, and then the other the other one is 100 Kilometer Foods, and their supply chain is more for kind of institutions, restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, Paul and Grace, if I'm wrong, but I, I think that they're focused on those bigger volume buyers. But the reason I love yeah. Fresh City Farms, I recently uh, I recently signed up to get one of their uh, food deliveries. So what they do is they bring you, um, uh, or what they do is they grow food in the city, but then they also have supply chains set up um, within Ontario, uh, and they and they provide you kind of like this like exquisite quality, like delicious, fair price. Uh, local and sustainable and kind of close to home as possible, but you also can get bananas. So all the things that you want, food, and they deliver it to your door for a $3 premium. And I think their solution is so elegant because they've gone and they've made the right choice, something that is affordable for me. You know, maybe not for everybody, but I can, it's easy for me to say, yes, I want this. And so... uh, I think they've just done a beautiful job there. And I, I think that the best solutions and a lot of these market-based solutions are going to be ones that recognize that human behavior is not going to change. We're still going to want things to be convenient. We're still going to want them to taste good, you know, and we're still going to want to be able to afford them. And I think Fresh City Farms has done a really nice job of doing that. And their eggs are amazing. <laughs> um, 100 Kilometer Foods, similarly, is building up a local food infrastructure. So their supply chains, they're focusing on kind of what's grown and produced uh, in Ontario. And so they're working very much, um, they're doing, they're able to do large volumes, but they're, they're working at a different scale than some of the mammoth food distributors uh, uh, who are working really kind of like with global supply chains. You can go to 100 Kilometer Foods, and they've got uh, relationships with farmers within Ontario 
who that, that are really two two two-way relationships. So, hundred kilometer foods can go to the, one of their farmers and say, "Hey, we've got this customer who you know wants more beets because they're going to do something in the restaurant with it," or you know, this hospital they need you know more carrots to for whatever it is that they're doing, and they're able to work with their farmers to 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 grow the things that are going to be needed. It's not like with these more remote supply chains where price is determining what you're buying and where you're buying it from. No, here actually it goes both ways and the food system is able to be responsive to local demand. Um, so I'm really excited about that work of 100 kilometer foods that is really localizing distribution, you know, creating jobs, decreasing the, the footprint of things, um, building connections and investing in this community in a way where there really are relationships again in food and it's not just transactional. So... Those are two of the ones that I'm super excited about. What, what's fascinating because it's been it's been tried for quite some time now, but we're finally seeing the uptake of that, mm-hmm. like of people making commitments to purchase, you know, X percent, ten, fifteen, or you know, focusing on one item, mm-hmm. anything like that, and they're saying we're making the commitment. Um, the reason why it's taken a bit longer is that they've had to do a couple things. One, that like they've like university campuses, students have had to, to start advocating for it. Mm-hmm. They're like saying, like, we want our food to be done this way. Mm-hmm. So that's taken some time. The second is that, you know, if you're if you're a hospital, like you'd you'd think that it would be an easy case to make around increasing like the quality of the food that you're serving in your cafeterias. But that's mm-hmm. been a little bit. But the bigger challenge, from what I've heard, is also on the those food providers, their supply chains, they're so, their supply chains were set up to purchase, you know, like all of their beef from one or two sources that untangling that so that they can actually, you know, access their, their, their beef or their vegetables or this product from 10 or 15 or 20 sources has been challenging. They've had to make the case internally. They've had to figure out who those are. Mm-hmm. You know, they have concerns around consistency of quality, all of these things that our current system is set up. Like every time you buy a carrot, you will see it like this rather than the ugly carrots of the world. So how do you untangle that so that, you know, you can source from a lot of smaller producers bringing it together. So that for me is the exciting one because mm-hmm. the potential to slowly ratchet that up, you know, and this work was first done, I don't know, like I want to say 10 years ago, five to 10 years ago, like new college at the university of Toronto was one of the first ones to take this on under the leadership of like Wayne Roberts and Lori Stallbrand and that inspired local food plus, which, you know, has been pushing for this. And so that work is continuing. You're seeing it now happen across Canada. Mm-hmm. Like that's the, mm-hmm. like, the potential for seismic shift on institutional food procurement is huge, you know, and then you have a lot of these other localized interventions that are bubbling up to get to that level of, well, like, what can we do to influence that across Canada? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the one of the projects that we were involved with that is really exciting is four years ago working with a group purchasing organization called Meal Source that buys food on behalf of. Uh, at the time, 26 healthcare facility members. And what they decided to do was, I mean, much like the work at New College and that we're seeing kind of uh, across the country, they did, they decided to commit to sourcing more local sustainable food where they could. Yeah. And um, with, they actually, I mean, traced the origin of, 1500, of the items, 1,500 items of food that they were buying, figured out where they were, said, holy smokes, 
and started to educate local vendors um, about the process of getting on their contracts so that they mm. could successfully win those contracts. Good point, yeah. And, um, and within one year, they saw a shift in uh, uh, $670,000. They were able to redirect um, to local vendors who were able to competitively, consistently, and a high quality supply that food. And because it's a contracted environment, that contract lasts for two years. So it actually is a $1.2 million shift. And ever since then, they've continued to do that work. And as as and they do it because it is valuable to their members. You know, they the the other folks who are managing food services and other hospitals, long term care facilities, see the value in this. They're doing this under tremendous pressure, not always with a lot of buy in from you know their directors mm-hmm. within the, these facilities. But they're continuing to push because they they see the value and um, it's growing. And in the process of doing this, they're educating. Uh, the local supply chains or you know local producer processors to build their capacity to actually be able to supply them in the future and not just them but the the the, mm-hmm. the other uh, kind of supply chains around them nice. I like that like for one of the reasons is that you highlighted the economic impact of that um, the 1.2 million because the the leap of faith that has to be made like and connecting, I think, local to, you know, hunger or poverty reduction or food security is that, that that money, like, is now going to be used by the producers, the processors, the entire supply chain, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. that's that's the thing that we all believe in, yeah. is that that ends up creating jobs. Yes. That creates livelihoods for producers, for, for peop- the workers in processing facilities, in distribution, in retail, all throughout the food value chain. And those, that livelihood, those jobs, is how you address that thing that like we started discussing, which is the, the monthly household budget, yeah. the ability for somebody to make ends meet from all of your non-negotiable living costs to the thing that people sacrifice, which is their, mm-hmm. their food budget, their diet, right? That if you could increase, like increasing guarantee income for people, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And so investing in local food you know, there it's it's a few steps, but the the proof is starting to be to be shown um, that that's the way forward to start addressing like one of the ways for a long term solution to hunger and food insecurity in Canada is that the problem the solution are related. It's it's mm-hmm. food. Like, how do you feed more people? You you support the local food economy. Next, we asked them what role urban farming played in food solutions. Growing food is empowering. Like growing, it, it is fun, and it's fun. You know, I have a, a garden at my house. I garden with my roommates. It is our like very delightful, joyful thing to do. And then I, when it's lunchtime, I get to go out and pick greens and tomatoes and make a salad, and that's it. I then go to the store. It tastes awesome. It's fun. I think there's a a, a really big kind of um, the role of growing food in cities. I, you know, with this, whether it's like your own garden or urban farming, I think it plays like a really. I think it plays a strong educational role within the community. It's empowering. It connects you to to your food again in a really fragmented uh, uh, food system. For many people, it, it can be a huge supply of the food that you're actually consuming within a given season. Um, um, I I don't necessarily see urban food production displacing 
um, uh, food, you know, the other traditional, like I don't think we'll see the disappearance of, you know, grocery stores or, <laughs> I guess that's a silly comment, but regardless, I, I think I see that kind of being a complement to existing food production, though I would love to be, uh, I would love to be surprised by one of Dave's f- future food entrepreneurs who comes up with this, like, fabulous, elegant system for producing a lot of food within an urban setting. Right now, I see, uh, like, a huge contribution being made by urban farmers, urban food growers, in terms of reconnecting people with their food, kind of empowering, educating people about food. And and for those who kind of are able or have enough land in an urban context to grow a lot of food, that that can be a, a substantial contribution to kind of your weekly or monthly food. Growing your own food is about connection. It starts helping you to realize... I don't know, that food doesn't just appear in a grocery store. Yeah. There, there's something behind it that it takes work. Um, you know, and yeah, it's. I'm not sure it'll ever completely replace somebody's grocery budget. You know, the reality of growing season in Canada is that we have a growing season. It's not permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, it does take a little bit of time and, and energy, but literally costs beans to start. Mm-hmm. Like, beans. Beans and seeds is all you need to start. Um, so in some ways, you are growing money. Like, you're growing money on yes. trees. Like, it's it's like, holy crap. Like, you can grow money on trees. Like, let's do that. You know, so in my... <laughs> In my dream world, where I was a benevolent dictator of Toronto, um, what would it look like if you mandated that every home, instead of planting rhododendrons and other shrubs and bushes, but actually had to have a edible garden or something like? Yeah. I know, like that for me is how you create an enabling environment for this: is that you can grow food all over Toronto. We're on some of the best farmlands in like in Ontario is is the suburb. So what would it look like if you started growing more food there? You know, to to supplement some of our mm-hmm. some of our grocery budget. Um, but more importantly encourage people to you know to be connected to their food system and then learn about how to actually cook some of those ingredients. Like the first time that you start getting like tomatoes and peppers and beans and Herbs, you're like, I don't know what to do with this stuff, but Swiss that's chard. you're like, well, but that's half the fun is yeah. okay. Well, I I could cook with these things, and so you start to learn to cook seasonally. You start to learn um, to cook fresh. You start to realize that holy crap, fresh stuff right off the vine is like so much more tastier than others. Um, so, and it's something that everyone actually could do, whether it be through community infrastructure of community gardens or backyard gardens or rooftop gardens or balcony container gardens. Like, you can grow food anywhere. So I think it's just a matter of mm-hmm. starting, experimenting, learning, being frustrated, having fun. All right, that was our Food Roundtable Part 2. You can see both Parts 1 and 2 on YouTube and on our website later today. Uh, on YouTube is available immediately, so if you're looking for any uh, information about that. Also, Dave, in the previous episode, we didn't play it today to keep time down, but there was a, a list of announcements going on at the Center for Social Innovation and elsewhere uh, as well that was on the previous uh, episode, and it's listed on the post there. So for any more of that information or to uh, find out more about any of those folks, go to greenmajority.ca, and uh, everything will be posted up there, uh, along with the new SoundCloud file of the show, in case you missed part of it or, or want to re- rewatch it or share it with a friend. Uh, we're going to go to a music break now. Without further ado, so we can uh, come back because we do have uh, Katie Gibbs ready to go. Uh, so without further ado, uh, here's a music break and we'll see you in a second. Do 
That was actually sung in a church in the UK, I believe. It was sent to us by a listener to the show, Oliver Swinger, who is the uh, writer of that particular version of the old Fisherman's Tune. Uh, you'll be able to find a link, which actually uh, has a sing-along version of lyrics and all available on YouTube, so you can find that on our uh, on the show post after the show. Uh, however, without further ado, Katie, I believe we have you on the line. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, and, and sorry for the little technical glitch there, but we are, uh, just to update our listeners, anyone coming in now, we're speaking to Katie Gibbs of Evidence for Democracy. And uh, what do you have for us uh, this month? Um, a lot. <laughs> it's been a very busy month. So we actually just launched a new campaign yesterday morning, and it's ended up being our fastest-growing campaign yet. So it's a campaign to support Ted Shoe's private member's bill, which would amend the Statistics Act to bring back the long-form census and add more powers for the chief statistician of Canada. So as everyone probably remembers, the current government eliminated the mandatory long-form census, put in place a new voluntary survey that provides uh, far lower quality data and actually costs more to implement. Um, so... Ted's private member's bill is going to have its first debate actually today at 1.30 in Parliament. So we've been encouraging people to email their MP to show their support for the long-form census. And just since about 7 a.m. yesterday, we've already had 2,500 people send an email to their MP. So there's clearly huge support for, for bringing back the census and No, I've I've said pretty much every time we've spoken to you that uh, evidence for democracy is kind of like the most the, the group that it sort of saddens me the most needs to exist. <laughs> yes, exactly. Of the fact of, that we're we're even fighting to you know bring back the long form census is a bit ridiculous. You know, I've talked to Munir Sikh, who was the former head of StatsCan, who resigned over this, and you know what I asked him is, uh, do you know of any other country? that had a true census and then got rid of it to go back to a voluntary survey. And he said, no, it's unheard of. Mm. And uh, so what do, you think the, uh, what do you think the chances are? Well, so it's, it's undergoing its first debate today, and then the second debate and vote isn't going to take place until January or February. So we do have a little bit of time to you know, build momentum again for this issue. Um, I think the chances of the bill passing is probably fairly slim, but for me, it's really about, you know, showing that this is an issue that is not going to go away, showing that Canadians care about the census, they care about smart government decision-making, so that hopefully, you know, the next government that we elect in 2015 will make it a priority to bring back the census. Do you... Um you know, we've 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 spoken before again about how the you know, and this sort of and the basis of sort of my previous <laughs> statement rather than question, I should say, um, w was just the simple fact about that you know that we, you're you're operating at the very basic level of just that better information makes better policy. It doesn't lead to any particular type of policy necessarily, but just that we should be following where the evidence lies. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be terribly complicated, uh, but you know because. 
I guess be sort of because of the nature of the the climate, for lack of a better word, um, in Canada. Have you been finding that generally this resonates with a certain group uh, at all, as as far as the public is concerned, or or, or have you been finding sort of very uh, nonpartisan, wide uh, support for the types of initiatives you've been working on? Well, I think it's it's certainly it's across the board. You know, especially when it comes to something like the long form census, so many groups use that information to make good policy decisions, whether it's, you know, at every level of government, you know, municipal, provincial, federal, um, but even businesses use that information, you know, when deciding where to, you know, open a new restaurant, for example. You know, that is, it's crucial information for community groups, governments, businesses. It's, it is really across the board. You know, I think everybody this day and age wants to have better data, to make smarter decisions. It's, it's a bit of a no-brainer. So for Christmas this year, everybody asked for the long-form census back. Uh, anything else we should be looking at, Katie? Yeah. Um, we also recently launched a campaign to try to get uh, people across the, hun- the country to host screenings of a CBC documentary called Silence of the Lab. So this is a great one-hour CBC documentary that really follows three government researchers who had their funding cut and really tells, you know, both the personal story of how they were affected and the larger story of how, you know, Canadians lose out because we no longer have this research. So we've had a great response to that so far. So look for a screening of that near you. And, you know, by all means, we're trying to get more people to sign up to host screenings in their neighborhood if they're interested. Um, and beyond that, we we actually launched our first report that I think that has happened since we spoke last. Um, so it's called Can Scientists Speak? And it's a assessment of the communication policies for government scientists. And it's actually the first systematic assessment um, ever done in Canada on this topic. And not too surprisingly, we found that overwhelmingly the communication policies, you know, do not support open and timely communication between scientists and journalists. So the department's got a, an average grade of, of C-. minus. Um, and what's interesting is we compared Canada to the U.S. and found that Canada's communication policies were far worse than in the U.S., uh, both in 2008 and 2013. So our, our policies are even worse than the communication policies under George Bush in the U.S. Wow. Well, and uh, it also uh, reminded me we we uh, we we covered the that uh, CBC documentary when it first came out and, and wrote a couple articles about it and uh, some of the responses to it were just absolutely maddening. Uh, <laughs> there was definitely some some uh, ideologically opposed, I will say, we'll put it that way, uh, folks who were speaking up and basically being, oh well, you know, they're just crying for nothing and this is how you know sort of this is how the world works. Um, which seems to be the, the sort of best argument against it was, you know, don't look here. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's not important. Um, but also more recently, um, we spoke to Michael Rorden with uh, his new book, uh, Bold Scientist, Dispatches for the Battlefront of Science. And, and I understand that you've spoken to him a few times as well. Um, yes, I think, I think just by email. I don't really think we've spoken on the phone yet. But, yeah, I'm definitely in touch with him. Mm-hmm. So do you think that this is, uh, have you seen sort of growth on, on this uh, sort of continuing as, as far as it actually resonating with, uh, with Canadians? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, just look at, at the census campaign that we just launched, you know, that was 2,500 people in a little more than 24 hours. That's, 
that's pretty huge. You know, it's definitely been uh, the fastest growing support that we've ever seen for a campaign that we've launched. So, you know, these things um, are certainly not not dying down. If anything, they're they're gaining momentum, um, and you know, we're seeing support really really grow quite quickly. Our our biggest challenge right now is not you know creating support. It's is trying to figure out how to keep up with all of the support that there is for this issue. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure you could use a little bit more. Um, we're going to go ahead and post um, uh, the the link to the report and also directly to the uh, to the page there if people want to get in touch with you. Uh, do you have anything um, uh, anything else you'd like to stick in? Uh, no, just in, also encouraging people to go to evidencefordemocracy.ca/census and send a message to your MP to support the long-form census. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. We'll, we'll check in with you as we, uh, as we have been now sort of every once in a while uh, for an update. Uh, and again, if people are interested as well, uh, I will have links both to the Evidence to Democracy page, uh, the survey, the report, and, and some of the other resources as well on today's show post. But for now, thanks so much for speaking to us, Katie Gibbs from Evidence for Democracy, and we'll check in with you uh, in another few weeks. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. All right, so we're, folks, we're going to take our second and final music break here with a little bit extra time, which is great, uh, because I still have a few announcements I'd like to go through. And, of course, we, as usual, have an, uh, the week's update from the world from Kevin Farmer's eyes. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back.
right, and we're back. We're into the home stretch here on the Green Majority. You're listening to on CIUT 89.5 FM or possibly one of our wonderful radio community syndicates. Or as of this week, Stefan, back on iTunes. What up? What? So you could very well be listening to this on uh, either our new SoundCloud account or possibly on iTunes or any, uh, any a variety of other ways. There's so many ways to get in touch with us. It's it's you know in case you couldn't possibly in case you didn't have enough from just one exposure through the radio show or the YouTube there's just there's a number of ways uh, hundreds more yes well maybe you could just days. shout our names from the rooftops yeah and we'll appear like Batman I would hope so that's amazing uh, so a quick couple of quick announcements um, one of them is that uh, uh, a friend of the show uh, Lynn Adamson uh, asked me to mention an event coming up this week which generally we don't do but I like Lynn so we're going to make an exception uh, which is the uh, voice of w- uh, Canadian voice of women for peace uh, is throwing an event called uh, conflict and climate change changing course now that's going to be at Metro Hall if you happen to be in Toronto this weekend that's this weekend Sunday November the 9th um, it's going to have a keynote speech uh, from Joanna Kerr, the executive director of Greenpeace Canada, as well as Connie uh, Sorio, sorry for possibly mispronouncing that name, of Kairos, uh, and a few other uh, important folks, uh, especially talking about militarization of the disaster response in Philippines and, and a number of other uh, militarism, food, water, and security issues and those sorts of things. Uh, if that sounds appealing to you, you can go to our website, and I will have both the uh, description, full description of the event uh, the outline of what's going on and uh, and all the sort of connect info, uh, information, how you register and all that sort of thing. So check out greenmajority.ca for that. Uh, also, Stefan, a uh, funny story from this week. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so this was a um, – I was I was on my computer as I often am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a friend of mine uh, who's in New York sent me a message being like, hey, congratulations. I'll respond to the message you said before eventually. He still hasn't, by the way. He's not responding to the original message. I want that to be on air and coast to coast wide. I think people need to know that Aaron Cates Rose needs to get back to me about that <laughs> message I sent him. <laughs> Anyways. Um, no, so he said it was, it was but congratulations. He sent this message to me. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And it turns out that he had... So we had sent out a press release, which 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 the Vancouver Observer had seen, and then and then basically made an article about it. Um, and then he, so his LinkedIn account, I guess, had like trolled the internet, found that, uh, and then and then put it up and then sent it to him specifically. And he's like, I know these people. That's odd. <laughs> and so message it, like in absolutely like it was like four different weird things that happened to happen at the same time, which mm-hmm. led him to think that we would have known what was going on. And when he said message, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, why are you why are you congratulating me for things? That underlines the importance uh, of having a Google search set up with your own name, mm. um, because I eventually got it. But it was, interestingly, you told me about it through the story through your friend before before I caught it. <laughs> but uh, apparently, media outlets don't necessarily or routinely notify you when they decide to put yeah, yourself just, up, which they don't have to. We're no. just thrilled to death that they yeah. happen to do it. And so, huge shout out to Vancouver Observer because they rock. Yeah, um, and that's awesome. And uh, and we've been getting a lot of uh, sort of press this week. That's great. So, Stefan, we're famous. We're so High famous. Five. High five, dude. Bam. There you go. Uh, so, a couple other little things. Of course, I talked about SoundCloud. I talked about the fact that we um, maybe potentially at some point, indeterminate amount in the future, maybe getting into apps and all that sort of stuff. That's that's a maybe that might be down the road, but uh, but I've started working on that as well. Uh, we've got some cool tablings coming up. If you happen to be in Toronto, uh, check that out. I won't sort of list all that stuff because many of you are not in Toronto, but for those of you that are, check out greenmajority.ca. You can find us there. A uh, whole bunch of improvement upgrades to the website and. Uh, and also, we're doing some some other fun things with with content as well, Stefan. What have you been working on? Uh, yeah, so well, that was the uh, the last article. Was it? it was sort of a follow up from the PCM? Actually, uh, it took a while to get out there because of you know 
the way things work. Real life. Real life, exactly. Uh, from any, uh, on many different avenues, not just one real life. Multiple ways real life works. Uh, but yeah, it was a follow from PCM. It was interesting because it sort of it, it sort of tried to capture the backlash uh, against the PCM, or at least the people who sort of said it could have done better, or the sort of the, not. I mean, a backlash maybe too harsh of a term. Although a couple times it was legitimately backlash. Um, but my favorite part about it actually was that. Um, there was the Heartland Institute sent a reporter down to the PCM to basically, the Heartland Institute is this incredibly right-wing um, think tank in the United States, and they have a blog, which is just kind of funny. Um, and they, so they send this guy down, down to the PCM to basically convince, just to find out, and then obviously to report back to the, to the people who read the Heartland Institute's blog, which has got to be the rightest of the right. Um, whether or not, uh, basically to convince, uh, to let the, their viewers know that they don't actually care. Uh, that 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 the PCM uh, was filled with a bunch of hippies who don't know what they're talking about and don't need to give it. that was their that was sort of the reaction that that, that they're trying to get, uh, and so he went down and he went he started asking everyone at the PCM uh, random questions, and what I what I found so fun, interesting was my favorite was that I actually ended up using a line from his blog as sort of the reason why I thought it mattered, uh, because he he sort of he sort of amazingly missed the point while also sort of getting it. It was interesting. Uh, so there's a, there's a whole blog on Alternative Journal about that. I was going to post it on everywhere else and, uh, as soon as I can. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, uh, that's the, that's the, that is what we're doing on the, uh, on the blog front. Yeah, and then uh, I've also, you're, uh, you're hard at work at editing them as well, but I've started doing a, a new sort of mini-series called uh, uh, EcoPSA. Uh, I was doing that a little while ago as sort of a, a tweet thing, and it's still sort of our branded uh, amusing commentary about the environmental movement itself. But the whole point is basically... Um, what I'm trying to do is they're they're kind of like mini workshops, I guess. Like by, by mini, I mean like I try to keep them under five minutes. They're usually mm-hmm. closer to eight, but as short as I can make them. Basically, just correcting common misconceptions uh, about what you know our point of view is. Sort of you know, and and not that in any way imply that we speak for environmentalists, but as environmentalists speaking for ourselves about here's some common misconceptions that people frequently have about us, either responding to. Uh, misinformed criticism that we get online or any of that sort of stuff. And, and it's things that we just think are really common. Um, so I'm basically doing that as a little mini-series as well. Um, so really tons of work going into the YouTube um, a whole bunch of other completely uh, autonomous uh, content there. Easiest way to find it is all directly linked off greenmajority.ca. Uh, and it, I was just going to come back and say, you know, for people, if you haven't heard of the uh, Heartland Institute, imagine an entire organization made up of Bill O'Reilly's. <laughs> that's basically Heartland. <laughs> uh, I, would, I, I think that's giving Heartland a little too much credit. <laughs> that's true. They're not quite as, uh, as classy, <laughs> I guess. But, uh. I mean, classy in a very loose sense. Uh, that's it for announcements this week. For more updates, as I keep repeating, check out greenmajority.ca. But uh, without uh, further ado, we're going to the beloved Dr. Sustainable, Kevin Farmer. What's up this week? Uh, hi, everyone. Sorry about the mic noise there. Uh, it's always like playing Twister here in the booth. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I guess, you know, the, the big news this week obviously would be the um, uh, synthesis, re- the, the latest report from the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Uh, with their their uh, synthesis report for policymakers, um, of course, this isn't exactly big news. Uh, these report the drafts of these reports always get leaked. Uh, I, I, I don't know why. I don't know if that's wise, but uh, so so a lot of this news has been trickling out for quite some time. If you pay attention to it, uh, and and I'm assuming people on the show do pay attention to these things, uh, or people listening to the show. At any rate, so uh, I thought I would just you know in case people haven't. Uh, typically, it didn't get it did get it does get coverage in mainstream media, but just not enough. So I thought I would just prepare 
uh, a summary of really the um, statement from the you know the international scientists regarding uh, policy uh, for to deal with global warming. Yeah, sorry, I just <laughs> couldn't resist. Um, Kevin, for your for Christmas this year, I'm buying you a soundboard. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, so in in the strongest language yet, the the IPCC is is saying, uh, look, folks, it, it, this is this is unequivocal. Uh, humans are causing global warming. Global warming is is on its way to being a planet sized catastrophe for our societies and our economies. We need to take action now. Um, uh, you, you, in, in scientist language, that is a panicking crowd. <laughs> that, is, that is people running around screaming. And, uh, and, and the question is, is anyone listening? So I thought it would also be interesting to uh, prepare a summary. of uh, Just a summary. I'm not you know, singling anyone out here, <laughs> but just sort of a general summary of the response from our mainstream news media and our politicians. Uh, wait, they, they no, they cover some better points in a minute. Policy. <laughs> does, does the faint chuckling add to it or take away, Kevin? Yeah, sorry, I can't. I don't want to kill my mic because I've got too many channels running at the moment to, to, keep, to keep track of what I'm doing. You're not supposed to laugh at your own jokes, Kevin. That's bad. No, no, I, I was going to point out that maybe that the, the laughing was a part of the part of the crickets. Yeah. The, you know, there's laughing in some crickets, and that was the point. I might just leave this running as a sound bit because it, it's kind of appropriate. To it all, it really does feel nice, though. I yeah, gotta say, I'm, I feel like I'm at the cottage. Yeah, this is great. We should do the whole show like. Can this. we have like a fire sound too and some smooth jazz? <laughs> uh, so, so you know, this is this has been my endless uh, complaint about about global warming and really in, environmental news in general uh, is that uh, we just don't pay any attention to it in politics and in mainstream media. And you know, to be fair, I, like I do, I, I do pay attention to a lot of the current affairs shows. Uh, uh, without a doubt, Power and Politics is you know the preeminent national current affairs show in this country. And I always pay attention to that because one, it's a superb show. <clears throat> excuse me. And two, they just have unprecedented access to uh, policymakers. Uh, and they, the, uh, so, so to be fair, they did give the IPCC report. This came out on Sunday, and they did give it, uh, you know, decent airtime on Monday's show, I believe. Uh, but what was what was actually very interesting about this was the very next day, Keystone XL came up on the show, and somehow this IPCC report about global warming just didn't factor into that discussion at all. So you know, on Monday we're reporting as fact that you know it's unequivocal that that humans are causing global warming, and that we it, and there is an urgent call for immediate action. And a day later, it's not considered context for a discussion about a massive. Uh, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure program. Uh, so, you know, once again, the, the issue is that we're not talking about global warming in particular, or even the environment in general, but we're, we're talking about reports about global warming. Uh, so, so, you know, global warming isn't news. The IPCC reports are news. And the really funny thing uh, about global warming that just doesn't get remarked on very often is that it actually occurs even between IPCC reports. 
it occurs when people aren't talking about it. It, re- it would be occurring if people even weren't running around gathering data about it. <laughs> so, uh, so again, it's this weird disconnect that you know some so, you know someone's got to publish a report and then we'll talk about that. But the actual phenomenon itself, which which you know worsens relentlessly every day, is just never part of a, a broader context in w- in which we discuss it discuss uh, policy issues. Uh, so hence, hence the cricket. So the other big news would have to be the American midterm elections. Uh, and, uh, you know, better pundits than I are available for parsing the, the endless vagaries of American politics. Um, it just, you know, this has ramifications, though, in general, that I think are worth paying attention to, in, you know, certainly over the next two years. Uh, without a doubt, Keystone XL, uh, the pressure to approve Keystone XL has probably been ramped up significantly. And uh, certainly uh, Obama's uh, moves to limit uh, emissions from coal-fired plants through the EPA is also going to come under scrutiny. And I think the situation we're in right now uh, is that uh, we, and I mean us collectively, planet Earth, uh, trying to deal with carbon pollution, is that uh, the Republicans now control the the House and the Senate. uh, So they can send legislation, which means they control the committees, and that sets the agenda uh, so I believe now the situation we're in is that they can send, you know, their their legislation, pet legislation, to Obama, and he can veto it at will. And I don't believe they have the votes to override a veto if it comes back to them. And if someone knows better than I about that and wants to correct me, please do. So what we might be, uh, it, 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 this is probably bad news in general. It, uh, but it might not be sort of um, a death knell for at least certain initiatives from Obama about. Uh, you know, uh, the, the EPA regulations to limit carbon emissions, uh, it, it just might have a lot of ramifications for Keystone. So we, we just might be in a scenario now where there's, you know, where we can at least expect kind of a pitched battle. Um, just, to <laughs> just to highlight one interesting uh, uh, consequence of this, though, is that Senator James Inhofe of uh, Oklahoma is, uh, is uh, likely to become the chair of the Senate's Environment and Public Works Committee. Uh, now, if it, I'm sure anyone listening in the U.S. is familiar with James Inhofe, um, and environmentalists, especially old farts like me, are, are aware of his comments. This man has been denying climate change for at least the last 20 years, uh, long before it was fashionable. This guy was an early adopter, uh, and the hipster of climate denial. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I've got just a little clip. He's actually written a book. Um, where's the title here? Sorry, just bear with me. Uh, yeah, he, he's written a book called The Greatest Hoax, How the Global Warming Conspiracy Threatens Your Future. And let me just repeat, this man is likely to become the chair of the Senate's Environment and Public Works Committee. So I, I think we can just anticipate <laughs> uh, the the uh, the sensibilities he's going to bring to that, that job. And I actually have a a little clip of him talking about his book and his rationale uh, for rejecting the science of climate change, which I owe to Alternet, a great uh, alternate um, news media site that I found some time ago and I've been meaning to mention for a long time. And just, uh, uh, whoops, I have to kill my crickets finally. <laughs> I was really getting sucked into those crickets. Coming. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was too. That was, that was, uh, that was really nice. A, a little taste of nature here in the heart of Toronto. Uh, so anyway, here's James Inhofe discussing, this is a very brief clip, discussing his book uh, uh, about the global warming conspiracy. Now, Senator, you, uh, we're going to talk about your book for a minute. You state in your book, which, by the way, is called The Greatest Hoax. Uh, we'll tell you how you can get it in just a few moments. 
But you state in your book that one of your favorite Bible verses, Genesis 8.22, while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. What's the significance of these verses to this issue? Well, the the actually the Genesis eight twenty two that I use in there is as long as the earth remains, there will be springtime, harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night. My point is, God's still up there, and this is the arrogance of people who think that we human beings would be able to change what He is doing in the climate is to me outrageous. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Um, his objections to the science of climate change are based in no small part on his interpretation of a passage from Genesis, uh, to which I can only say, God help us. <laughs> no, seriously. God help us. Talk to this man. <laughs> he seems to listen to you. <laughs> so, uh, not to pick on religion or anyone's sensibilities, uh, yeah, and I don't mean to do that at all, but uh, I just think this 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 does not bode well for uh, you know a powerful Senate chairperson uh, appointment uh, regarding a a topic that needs to be mediated by science. So I, I think it's fair to say that uh, you know if if that appointment goes through, uh, we're 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 going to see uh, at, at best inaction uh, coming from the American Senate. And with regards to the EPA, which is definitely under attack in the states. We uh, one I forget the person's name now, but one uh, candidate I, I can't remember uh, who it was or if th- that person won, but one person was openly campaigning on just abolishing the EPA. So I think even if we don't see sort of a full frontal assault on uh, on, on uh, you know regulations to limit carbon emissions, which is becoming sort of a signature Obama initiative, uh, I think we can see kind of the death of a thousand cuts, you know, the throttling of a budget, the, the endless sort of uh, tying up with legal proceedings and, and other sort of procedural tactics to just kind of just bollocks up the EPA in general and, and maybe kind of, um, you know, give it sort of the, the procedural legislative and budget budgetary death of a thousand cuts. Yeah, we're, uh, thank you very much for that, Kevin. I do want to I do want to say something. We've got about a minute left, and 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 I cannot let that uh, the that sort of perfect opportunity uh, pass me by, which is to you know, a, as you mentioned there, we do you know we stick to the environment on this show, and 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 we generally uh, you know don't get into uh, issues of uh, religion or anything like that. But but in this particular case, it's a perfect example of why you can't pretend that sort of religion doesn't exist. And I think when we're talking about situations, and this is sort of my perspective on it, uh, and take it as it is, and if you sort of disagree, then and, you know, feel, for, feel free to disagree, and, and if it really bothers you, go ahead and email me, and, and we can happily have a discussion about it. But what public policy has to be, be secular. It has to be secular, uh, because the difference between secular policy and religious policy is that one of them is based on evidence, and the other one is believing things without evidence by definition. And and you know before anybody gets super upset about that, that's the definition of those words. So if you're claiming that you happen to know something uh, based on not just because uh, uh, your holy book says so, but because your personal particular interpretation of that holy book says so, and we can find 50 other people that have 50 different interpretations of that, you don't get to make policy that affects other people based on that. Oh, yeah, you, sorry, you to, just sorry don't. to jump in there. Exactly. There is a, a, a significant uh, movement among evangelical Christians who take a diametrically opposed view to this, saying uh, that environmental steward 
stewardship is is uh, is essential be- because for the very opposite interpretation uh, of this is that it is up to us to protect God's creation mm-hmm. and 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 take you know uh, take proper stewardship of this thing that we have been given and it's just like you say like, I'm not picking on anyone I just threw that out for some humor value mm. uh, but uh, but the, you're right it, uh, the the other issue is one it's not evidence based and the and two people just don't agree on the interpretations or even the religion or even the deity. Yeah. Well, and, and that's that's sort of why it has to be secular, because really, from a religious point of view, the, the folks and I, and I understand that there's a lot of them. Uh, Steph, Stephen Sharper, for instance, hasn't been on the show in a while, but he's very well connected with that community. Uh, but you can't really say that the people that take um, their holy book to inspire their environmentalism is is has any more of a, a, a correct uh, interpretation than the folks who take the opposite view, really. So, you know, when it, it, when it comes down to me for it is. Uh, if 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 somebody wishes to to get inspiration from their religion, I think that's exceptional. We'll take all comers, uh, but we it can't be the only reason uh, because then we really can't tell the difference between that and and sort of the opposite view, which is why sort of these discussions should stay. I think especially as far as you know, if we want to sort of get inspiration from various places, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But when we're making policy, the policy itself has to be based on secular science. There's just no there's no way around it, or or basically we end up in in anarchy. Uh, I may have stirred up a hornet's nest we don't generally go that far into the religious issue but if you agree or disagree with what i have to say go ahead and email but without further ado unfortunately that is the end of the show so have a good green week folks and we'll see everybody next week